Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis, where New Memphis is celebrating our city by providing a weekly window into the ways Memphians are solving problems, looking forward, and successfully shaping the community. Good morning, Memphis. We are here with your weekly Meanwhile in Memphis episode. My name is Anna Mullins-Ellis. I'm here with my friend and colleague. Say good morning, Christy. Good morning. I was about to say good morning, Christy. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, guys. How are you? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. How how have you been? I feel like we should do a, 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 a check-in. A quick wellness like, check. <laughs> yes. This is the perfect episode to do that since we'll have on a nice guest today whose focus is wellness. Just if stay tuned and I'll tell you who it is. Excellent. I didn't even think about that thematically, <laughs> yes. but here I am. Um, I'm doing pretty well. I'm like, I feel like 2021 has been this reckoning of just realizing that we're going to be in the work from home game. For a little, (laughs) for really, yes, entered the sandlot cut here. (laughs) Um, I just, I've kind of come to terms with it. I feel like 2020 was just like a whole like roller coaster of, oh, we're going to be out. No, we're not. Yes, we are. No, we're not. Um, And 2021 has kind of been like a year of acceptance for me so far of, you know, this is what we're in. Let's deal with everything that's going on in the world, with work from home, with the pandemic, everything, the best we can to our capability. So it's been a very, you know, refreshing time for me lately, trying to get better at setting up those standards of what helps me work best. Um, not a pro at it yet, obviously. You work with me, you get my weird emails. So No, I think you're, I, boundaries is important. I, I, I agree. Like, I feel like 2020 broke all of us, like, into, like, we're all just like, Matthew McConaughey's of the world now. We're just like, <laughs> just just keep living. Just yeah. chill. Just fit. chill out, man. It's just going to happen. Just let it flow over you. <laughs> I will say, like, every time I hear about somebody getting a vaccination, like, I get, like, a completely ridiculous and unearned, like, boost of excitement. Yeah. doesn't have to be anyone I even know. <laughs> like, <laughs> a, like, absolute stranger can be like, yeah, my, like, granddad. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like, it's just, I, it really does give me a sense that... Not only, like, this is over, but that, I don't know, just, I, I think that I had been, like, bottling up, like, just a sort of just quiet, under-the-surface bubbling fear yes. that, like, everyone I love would die. <laughs> so it, it, It's that thing that lives in the back of your head, right? And it just is this looming fear of, like, anxiety over you the entire time that even though you don't recognize it and, like, state, like, you have that fear living, it's always there. It's always present. So I agree with you seeing everyone take pictures of their vaccination cards and like posting them online. I, I'm here for it all day. Yeah. So. Like the fact that my parents have like a, for, a I, I call it first vax. They're, they're first vax. Their first vax. Um, but yeah, it's, it just changes my whole outlook. So here on this uh, very gloomy February morning, I yeah. will say things are looking up Memphis. <laughs> Spring is around the corner. So to that end, uh, we have, as Christy said, I think a very appropriate show. Um, So we are going to bring you a TEDx talk from last year. Yes, 2020, which again... it's hard Every time to put we in do perspective. Ago, can you even believe that that was one year ago? I always want to think it's 2019. And yes. I was like, no, it was it was the very beginning of 2020. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar, uh, here on the Meanwhile in Memphis podcast, every few weeks we play for you a local TEDx Memphis talk. So every year we host a TEDx conference here in the Bluff City where we invite thinkers, academics, uh, artists, ac- activists, folks who really are just, in, in our perspective, um, 
leading with some of the best ideas, the most innovative thought in our city. Uh, so we bring them to the TED stage and we ask them to give a TED talk. Um, if you're not familiar with TED talks, where have you been? Um, but they are short, idea-driven talks that are meant to, you know, spark spark uh, your thinking, hopefully, as the listener to get dialogue going. So today uh, we have a TED talk from our good friend, Chloe Hakeem Moore. Chloe is an exceptional young woman. I uh, met her a few years ago and thought immediately, I bet this woman would give an amazing TED talk. <laughs> and not only is she going to talk about, as Christy said, um, self-care and wellness and sort of what holistic wellness means, but she also has an amazing career for someone her age um, in a local nonprofit. So we're going to hear lots about how she uh, lives, works, and takes care of herself. Yes. So tell us a little bit more about Chloe. Yes, Chloe is the director of Next Memphis at Porter Leith. She is also an internationally acclaimed social designer, artist, and humanitarian. And honestly, I could go on, but the show is only an hour long. <laughs> so she is just a rock star of a human, and she is fueled by the unshakable reverence for all life. Her practice demands dignity for all and centers on reimagining of social systems to guarantee global well-being. In short, in very right, short, no. like Chloe is just a powerhouse at only, I think she may be 27, possibly 28 now. I know she was 26 when she gave her TED Talk. Yeah, and so. I'm sure, I, wasn't she like honored by, this is probably in your notes, <laughs> she was honored as Forbes yeah, 30 under 30 in 2020, at the beginning yes. of 2020. She's, she is not only uh, a superstar here in Memphis, but uh, her light shines beyond our city as well. So without further ado, let's bring in Chloe. All right. All right, guys, we are here. Chloe is with us. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty great, all things considered. I know. I feel like that's what we were just talking about earlier is how that question has like an <laughs> ominous tone now. And instead of like a happy, even though I know I just said it very happy, but that's just my voice, guys. You've <laughs> listened to this long enough at this point. That's just how I sound. Um, it's always, how are you? But it's like, you know, like therapist hand crossed. Like, how are you yeah, doing today? Yeah. <laughs> you can be honest. It's Well, for those listening who may not know a lot about you, um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I, this is always such a great question because it's like, where yes. do you start? <laughs> start so, from birth. Where? Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? I'm born and raised as a Memphian, um, but my mom is from a different country. So I grew up in both like Memphis communities and also in immigrant communities, yes. which I think gave me a pretty cool perspective on the city. Um, I've worked here. I've done my education here. And I'm chosen as a big Memphian. I say that because I didn't always love Memphis, mm -hmm. especially in high school when, I mean, I feel like high schoolers in the suburbs just have a different perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't get the best parts of Memphis. Yeah. And it was so, I don't know, kind of sickening for me to see places like a Miami, a Chicago, a New York, and L.A. who had a hometown pride just coming out of everywhere. And I wanted that. So I chose to stay in Memphis until I loved it. And I told myself I couldn't leave until I fell in love here. And now I'm in love here, and I'm like, I don't want to leave. You don't want to <laughs> leave now, yeah. <laughs> Self-proclaimed Memphian on all fronts. I love that. Like, I've never heard it put quite that way, about wanting to stay until you loved it, and then that love, you can't, you don't want to leave something yeah. you love. Yeah, yeah, it sucks you in. I think that's great. So you work for the lovely organization Porter Leith. You I run do. their next program as the director. Tell us a little bit about the organization and the mission. Yeah, so Porter Leith um, has been around since 1850, and it's also constantly growing. So it's pretty cool to work in an organization with deep roots that's also forward-thinking. 
Um, it's a child and family services organization. So all the programs are centered and focused around how do you create conditions to where families and children have more access to being healthy, having optimal and independent lifestyles, and also sprinkle in some joy in there. I think mm -hmm. it's a pretty it's a pretty fun company to work for at the same time. That's always nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty great. <laughs> so how did you, working in this sort of family and child advocacy space, mm -hmm. how, you know, what, how did your career lead to this path? What were you doing before you were with Porter Leaf? Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. I fell into early childhood. Like I know uh, almost everybody who's in early childhood is like there. They've been right. passionate about children forever. And that's just not my story. I am passionate about children and family advocacy, but I started work, um, doing things with folks who have refugee or immigrant status. So I started off out of college working for World Relief, and I, I built a citizenship test program for them. Hmm. So I was doing that. It was also grant funded, and I was the only employee on that project. So I was like the, the teacher, the curriculum designer, the marketer. The, all the things. <laughs> all the things. <laughs> and so, you know, that as grants go, it was pretty temporary. So I was doing that. The grant ran out, but I still had students, so I'm trying to get them through this cohort because we end up make, having a pretty incredible bond. And so at some point, I'm teaching, but then I also have like four other jobs, right? Like I'm in retail, right. tutoring for the ACT, and babysitting just to make my ends meet. And this job comes up at a design thinking boutique consulting firm, and their job description is like, we want someone who's trained in anthropology or sociology. That's my background. Yeah. Who like, like lives and it. breathes empathy. <laughs> All these things and like the job description spelled my name basically. Yeah. So a friend sends it to me, imposter syndrome creeps in. I'm like, nah, I'm not gonna apply for this. And then she sends it to me again. She's like, if you don't apply for this, <laughs> I will submit this for you. So I end up working at this consulting firm and I'm doing again work on food entrepreneurship for people who have refugee or immigrant status. So the projects that came out of that, if you don't know, are Kaleidoscope Kitchen mm. and also Longer Term Global Cafe. Mm. So it's pretty cool to see these things Yeah, come I didn't up know they like, came out of yeah, that. That's really like cool. real life. Like even with Global Cafe, their first iteration of chefs were people that we had worked with. Awesome. So it's pretty great to see that. Um, and then somewhere in the middle, we started an early childhood project and they said, hey, Chloe, we need a social scientist on this project. Would you mind switching? So in my mind... I'm thinking like, okay, I'll go work with these little kids for three months <laughs> and then go back to what I'm supposed to do, right? And I just fell in love. Like I, I can't even explain. When I learned how important early education is, when I learned how few people have access to this, and it's also pretty big to me because education, I think, has been one of the pillars that has kept my family moving forward. Right. It's like, just as quick context, my dad is Native Memphian, his dad is Native Memphian, and my dad was born in Memphis when segregation was still legal. Hmm. And my mom is a first-generation immigrant. And her family worked so hard to, like, put her through university to be here. So we know what it feels like to build from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And so things such as access are pretty sensitive to me because I've grown up in communities where access might be, like, first-generation in many cases. So seeing our city, seeing our education statistics, seeing what access looks like across different communities and zip codes... And I started to see how access to early education is one of the biggest interventions for lifetime poverty, especially for young children and adult poverty. It's really sucked me in. So I worked at the research firm. I transitioned to seeding success afterwards. Mm -hmm. I'm in the research firm close. So it was a pretty fortunate and smooth transition. Right. And spent my time at seeding success really in the early childhood space. So building out Next Memphis, 
working on the initiative First Eight Memphis and helping build out that back end, going through funding conversations, which was a whole experience, which probably took almost as long <laughs> as it took to build the program. And then, yeah, transitioned to Next Memphis in November of 2019 to lead the implementation work. That's really cool. Your whole trajectory seems very guided. Like, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. it's it's it was as if it was built for you, you know, which is a very mm -hmm. fortunate thing. But you've also very much paved your way. Yeah. But it just kind of the way you were talking about like that job and the imposter syndrome. So you didn't want to do it, but it was truly checking all your boxes. <laughs> I feel like sometimes when especially like when you're in that first generation headspace, like I'm a first gen college student. Mm -hmm. So like I, imposter syndrome is real for everyone. Everyone encounters it. But I feel especially people that are in that first gen yeah. space, no matter what the first gen space is, it tends to hit a little harder. Mm -hmm. um, how do you how did you kind of I know I've heard you speak and I know you've like done amazing things to overcome those feelings of like feeling like you're not good enough. And I just did air quotes like everyone can see me. <laughs> but, you know, like you're not good enough in a sense. How do you counteract that imposter syndrome? Yeah, thanks for the question. I, I appreciate that one. I think there are a few different things I do. And I'm also honest that it comes in waves. So there mm -hmm. are days or seasons where I feel it more strongly and other seasons where I don't feel it at all, which is preferable. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what I say. that's like an amazing feeling when you don't feel it. It's yeah. so rare, but you're like, I am here. I am doing it. <laughs> yeah. And I think the moments when that comes up, especially because I'm in work that's community rooted, mm -hmm. which is also my preference. I think about the little kids who aren't at the table, who don't get to make the decisions. It's a great And who will have to go through the system that we make the decisions about. Or I think through the families who need access to full-time um, work that pays a living wage at minimum and who need access to education opportunities who also aren't here. And so when I start to get in my feelings about, you know, am I good enough? All these right. things, it's, it's so much bigger than me. So I have to kind of put that aside for a second and say, okay, I will deal with this. I just need to deal with it a bit later because right now, like, we have some pretty important work to do. So that, um, I have an incredible team. I can't say enough about the staff at Porter Leaf and specifically the staff in Next Memphis. I get to brag on them because I work with them <laughs> the most, but they're incredible. So it's never just me, right. which is amazing. I mean, I had to make that shift, too, of I grew up as a pretty independent and rooted kid who felt like if I saw a problem, I needed to fix it. Mm -hmm. And when you start leading teams, you can't be that way. Like you have to empower people to do the work that they're trained to do. You have to train them in the work that they need to do that they haven't had access to skills yet. Um, and then you have to trust people. So I think that, yeah, that there's a sense of community that can help you walk through or at least keep your progress moving forward right. when you're feeling imposter syndrome. And then the other pieces, I think, are, are therapy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Going to therapy, talking to, to other people who are, you know, in your similar, I mean, bracket, your age group. Mm -hmm. I have some pretty cool friends you guys have interviewed. I'm like James Dukes, Rachel Knox. Yes. I don't know if Victoria has been on the podcast yet, but Not she's. Not yet, but we've, she's, we're, we're trying. trying. We're yes. <laughs> okay, okay, sweet. So, I mean, getting to talk to them and just say, like, yo, this is how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And they're like, understand but like get your head out, you know, yeah. out where you're at because that's not that's not how we see you. That's not what any of your track record shows. Um, I have an amazing partner. He's out and we're doing long distance, but he's amazing. So I think it's really about, you know, managing your mindset, but also connecting with the people around you, whether it's personal or work. Hmm. Well, so you, you had the great, uh, you know, it's so rare that somebody gets to both sort of uh, 
create the blueprint for this social change. And then now you're getting to go execute on that plan. Mm -hmm. So you're about a year in uh, or a little over a year, I guess, at this point with um, Next Memphis. So tell us, you know, I mean, for I know we've been talking sort of generally about early childhood and for the sake of our listeners who may not be as familiar with the space. What is what is the day to day work of Next Memphis? Mm-hmm. Um, how you know how is the progress going now that you're you've got your feet wet? Yeah, great great question. So, just for context, Next Memphis is a startup program in early childhood education that launched in the middle of a pandemic. So so easy easy, <laughs> easy work. Um, what we're looking to do and what we're doing is building a new infrastructure for early care and education. So early childhood education are some of the most important educational years, period. Like the, your brain develops, like 90% of our brains develop by age six. So like so much important foundational development happens in those early years, yet very few programs get the resources that they deserve and need to implement the high quality programs that they know are necessary for children's development. On top of that, early childhood education is also huge for our workforce. So In a 2018 labor uh, department report, 70% of women who were not in the workforce cited childcare as the number one reason they couldn't be in full-time employment. So early childhood education in terms of access is huge and to not have the needed resources causes barriers in our communities for generations. So our work is building a system, not, not unlike a school system or school district for early childhood education. And our goal is If we help people, our theory of change is to have viable businesses, high quality practices in the in the classroom, so specifically around education and then wraparound services for families. You create this ecosystem that's thriving for children, families and professionals in the space to all come together and create positive outcomes along again, the profession, the families and the child's development itself. So if anyone's familiar with Head Start or Early Head Start, what we've essentially done is taken Porter Leith's infrastructure and providing Early Head Start and Head Start, repackage that and basically have the same offerings to childcare partners who are in the community, who are not affiliated with Porter Leith, they are not owned by Porter Leith in any way, shape or form, will never be owned by Porter Leith in any way, shape or form. And we come together in a partnership to provide a huge array of resources at virtually no cost to them. So the goal is, again, to get additional resources into the classroom and programs so that we can take off some of the task and cost burdens on directors and teachers so they can have more time to focus on the people side. Yeah. So just as an example, directors might wear 80 different hats in a day. So they're the director. So they're the business owner. They're the accountant. They're the plumber when something goes wrong. They're the lead <laughs> teacher or the teacher when somebody calls out. Like they, It's almost an impossible job, yet so many people do it. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's, okay, if we can take 70 of those hats off of your job description, how much more space does that give you to really dig in? So that's that's the ethos of what we're doing. We have eight partners right now and have space for 10. So I'm currently recruiting for two more partners. And, I mean, they've it's been amazing to see their resilience throughout the pandemic, to see how they're looking at, you know, shifting from they've gone back and forth of being virtual, in person, some kind of hybrid, taking in school age children. Like they've they've done a fantastic job at navigating so many different new normals. I'd also do your air quotes. Yeah, <laughs> see, it's so easy to do. And then you remember that people like, can't no can see, see you. you. Yeah. <laughs> they can hear it. Yes. <laughs> can you hear the air quotes in my voice? Yeah. <laughs> like, 
Well, you know, I think this is really an area, um, you know, we talk a lot on this on this radio program podcast, but also just generally in our work, where Memphis is truly leading with best practice nationally, yeah. even globally. Mm-hmm. And these things that we can really say, like, no, like we're innovating in a very, oftentimes it's in response to a really acute challenge in our community. And so we have to be more innovative and we have to be thinking um, just, again, you know, taking this concept of, I know people are familiar with Head Start, this idea that like, oh yeah, um, this is so, this is beyond daycare, I guess is mm-hmm. one thing that I think is really important for people to understand that it's not just where can I put my kid who's three to five or two to four or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um, while I try to go to work. It's understanding that these are vital years, that there's so much development that is happening regardless of whether you're being intentional about it. Um, so if we're helping people in these communities create spaces where kids are safe and learning and, you know, have that like healthy development that that could truly transform our society. I mean, like, and I think that's, yeah. I, 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 when we talk about education, um, I'm always trying to remind people that you don't have to have kids for this to be an important issue. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have young kids for this to be an important issue. You don't have to have kids in public school for it to be an important issue. If you care about Memphis's future, you care about our economy, you care about our poverty rates. This is the the key that unlocks all of those challenges. So we're excited to have you. I mean, golly, (laughs) we say this all the time, but to have your brilliance applied to this problem is is good news. Um, But we obviously, uh, we we actually didn't have you here to talk just about early childhood (laughs) issues, although I think we could talk about it for a full hour. We could talk to Chloe for like five hours and it probably still wouldn't be enough. Well, I think that's, you know, the heart of um, why we wanted you to give a TED Talk last year and why I think you gave such a uh, impressionable talk is you are that perfect, uh, you know, I think that one, you are so deeply honest about your experience and both, you know, what has shaped you, but also the the, the obstacles and, you know, mm-hmm. how just how you're navigating the world. And I think that's really unique. You're obviously very eloquent, I think, in how you um, how you share those experiences with others. So her TED Talk um, is not focused necessarily on her day to day work, even though it's fascinating um, and so many TED Talks from an academic would focus on the the data and the research, but she decided to give a talk um, that really reflected on this concept of wellness mm-hmm. and your wellness journey and trying to share with others nuggets of wisdom about how to engage in real self-care. Um, so that, you know, I, I'm going to first ask you, why did you want to give a TED Talk and what led you to this as a topic that you felt like needed to be heard from the TED stage? Yeah, so... Why I wanted to give a TED Talk. Um, it's a TED Talk. I was about to say, who, <laughs> it's who doesn't want to give a TED Talk? <laughs> yeah, I actually, so I learned about TED Talks in college. And I've been described throughout my life as, um, and people meant this well, but they've <laughs> called me aloof before or like really heady sometimes. And it's not that I'm detached by any means, but I think about larger concepts a lot. And it's not even necessarily by choice. That's just how I've been wired. Yeah. So I find TED Talks, and it's people talking about larger concepts, and there are thousands of talks. So I'm like, okay, cool. This is this is my tribe of yeah. people, right? So from that perspective, it's cool to contribute to a larger body of people wanting to share ideas about things that aren't just the day-to-day, right? Or things that are about how you improve your life, how you're more intentional, how you give yourself more grace, how you can do things that are innovative or entertaining or or anything along the gamut of what TED Talks cover. So that was pretty crazy. Um, 
I also, when you guys reached out, I'd had in my mind, I'd wanted to do a TED Talk sometime in my life. I just didn't think it would come when it did. Right. <laughs> so when I got the email saying like, oh, you know, you're, you said these wonderfully nice things. Would you consider giving a TED Talk? And I just yelled. I was like, yes. <laughs> like, this is amazing. So, yeah, I, w- I was really hype. Um, and I'm big on honesty. Like, I can't tell you how much it bothers me. Um, and I'm fi- like, it's not personal when people do this. Like, the thing that I'm bothered with is never personal. But I'm bothered by the, like, highlight reel effect. Or like the veneer of everything's great mm-hmm. that our culture is so big on. Yes. Um, because I think it really harms people, like re- like a lot. Um, I think it causes people uh, different kinds of strife or struggle that don't have to be there. And so, you know, for better or for worse, I also don't, I can't do small talk. It, it also, like, if I'm doing small talk, you will know. <laughs> you will feel uncomfortable because I clearly look awkward. So it's just never been something that I'm really keen towards. And so I just don't do it. Like, I just, right. I just try to talk to people about things that matter to them or that matter to me. And so a big part of my work and a big part of what I think about is um, I have this innate love for living. I love experience. I love um, just like small things about life. Like I love when a breeze rustles over you or like you can sit and just be quiet by some water and feel content. And I think that our culture does so much to distance people from those small moments of just feeling content Uh, because that's how a lot of our culture makes money. It's how Mm -hmm. a lot of our culture um, has processed what it means to be a person. And I just like, not in some loud way, but I just, internally reject that and try to create spaces for myself where I don't feel that way all the time. So in giving a TED Talk, I thought, you know, the thing that was most on my mind and that's mattered to me a lot recently has been well-being. And that's well-being for individuals, um, which is a lot of what my TED Talk covers, and also the ways that ripples out into our relationships, um, our communities, and largely our institutions. Um, You know, we I promise I won't get into politics. <laughs> Please. Um, but over the past, I mean, five years, our culture has gone through a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason than just like mass disruption from our federal level. Um, I think that, you know, our news cycle also, again, it's I don't think it's as on purpose, but because they chase ratings, they chase things that are really heavy and negative. And we have technology access 24-7. So even just the constant barrage of, of strife is heavy for people. So when I think through, you know, what we've gone through as a culture, I mean, we started off 2021 with a coup, right? right. Like, that's wild. So It's a we... super wild thing to live through. Like, yeah. meet, you're working, and then you look at the TV, and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. Like, where am I? Yep. And I saw, I saw on Twitter, somebody was like, uh, the most American thing I've seen all year is a text from my friend that said, um, so am I still supposed to go to work while there's right. two? Or like, like what do we do? How do we navigate this? this? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And my friends and I have joked that like we're tired of living through historically significant moments. Mm. Yes. And retweet. Yeah. I remember <laughs> like, in high school seeing the black and white photos of the civil rights movement and thinking like, wow, how cool would that have been to be there? And now we're deep in this, mm-hmm. the, the movement 2.0 plus like climate change, global violence. Uh, globalization, economic recession, worse than 08, yes. all these things. I'm like, cool. I'm tired. Of this. I'm like, millennials like, are tired. I'm over it. Yes. <laughs> like, 
we're worn out. It's yeah, fine. like I'm happy to be in this time where we can do the work and it really, really yes. matters. And that where people are talking about it in ways that's never been talked about before at such a scale that it's never been spoken about before. And I know that it can be existentially exhausting for people. Mm-hmm. So figuring out ways, I think, to channel that energy of social movements, of individual healing, of communal um, building into something that's actually pretty strategic, which is how do you create systems and personal processes that guarantee well-being for everybody? Because um, this this narrative between the haves and haves-nots have existed since the beginning of time. And honestly, I just I feel like it's kind of played out. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm ready for a different story. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this you gave this TED talk in. Early 2020, pre, pre, yeah, like literally, really, yeah, really close to right before. Yeah, it really was. Because it was like, February. Yeah, that, um, but it really resonated with me then as somebody who can fall victim to the sort of like too busy, you know, just like make yourself too busy all the time. Yeah. And that's sort of a culture that we've painted for, you know, this is what success looks like. So it really resonated with me then. But I feel like um, your message really sat with me over the course of 2020, as, as you said, you know, I mean, there's so many to just acknowledge how hard this is and Mm -hmm. to be, you know, and I, while acknowledging my privilege and that I, I didn't lose employment or income Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And I, no one, you know, I wasn't, I haven't been sick yet. God, knock on wood. Um, (laughs) but even just to be able to say, but it's still been really hard. Um, and to know that like, there are things that you can do to take care of yourself that lead to a kind of happiness that you can't find in, the proverbial rat race. So I guess we'll stop talking about your TED Talk and <laughs> listen to your TED Talk and then come back and talk about it yeah, more. Lovely. So this is uh, Chloe Hakeem Moore's TED Talk, Stop Chasing Purpose and Focus on Wellness. TEDx Memphis, it is an honor to be here and also pretty timely if you ask me. See, I'm fresh on the other side of my quarter-life crisis. Now, to be clear, the crisis is still here. I just turned 26, so your girl aged out. I'm on the other side of that quarter-life side. And if you're not familiar, a quarter-life crisis is basically like a midlife crisis, just 25 years early. So you're still asking the same questions of who am I? Am I using my time well? What are the things that I really want to do in terms of family, career, health, drinking water, staying hydrated, all of those important things that we have to pay attention to? And for millennials, this is actually a pretty big phenomenon. According to the Center for Disease Control, one in three millennials have a diagnosed anxiety disorder. And anxiety is one of the key elements of any kind of crisis. It's proven math, I promise. And for us, it's not just about figuring those things out, but we're doing so in a world that really human history has never seen before. We have things such as the internet, which is endless information. We are living in some of the most innovative and prosperous times, according to the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF, and also are still seeing persistent inequalities that seem like they haven't really moved much in centuries. According to every credible climate scientist, if we don't change what we're doing by 2050, we will have irreparably damaged our world. So there's a lot to take in there, right? And when you're looking for purpose, which usually comes in the question of, what do you want to do with your life? That's a big challenge. And I have a theory that for millennials and for all people, we're probably a little scared. 
So in the spirit of new friendships, it's time to overshare. We're going to dive into my quarter life crisis to work through how I believe that following purpose has kind of kept us stuck. And really, we should be focusing on wellness, and I believe that that will give us the answers we've been searching for. So I've had the fortune of basically knowing my deepest fear since I was really little. Some people call that precocious. Other people call that an undiagnosed anxiety disorder. Tomato, tomato. The first time I really recognized what was going on, because I had always felt like something was there, it was when I was in Trinidad with my family, visiting my other family. My mom's from Trinidad and Tobago. And I adored my grandmother. She was incredibly creative, so when she was getting up to do art projects, like, I'm there, you know? So we're walking one morning to her kiln to get her new ceramics, and I'm holding her hand. And I noticed for the first time that her fingers were really wrinkly, and the verdant green veins in her hand were popping out more than I was used to, and her fingers were also a little thin. And it hits me that, you know, she's older, and she's not going to be here forever. And I'm like her, so I'll be older, and I won't be here forever. So little eight-year-old me is like walking into an existential crisis. And I have to let that go pretty quickly, because my hand had been like a limp fish in hers, so she's like, Chloe, you don't love me anymore? Thinking I don't want to hold her hand. So I squeeze it really tight to prove to her that I love her, and I get out of my existential crisis, and I'm like, nope, I'm here. And that moment really shaped how I went through life going forward. I told myself, okay, I know I'm scared to not be here, so I'll love on my loved ones really hard. I'll figure out how to be a very good person in the world, and I'll follow my purpose and dive deep into it. So I'm doing this, I'm on it, I'm um, deep in school, and I get to college, I'm ready. So I join all these kinds of clubs. I don't just join them, but I volunteer myself to be a leader in them. I'm an RA, so I'm taking care of 30 women every year, which one of the best things I had ever done. And I'm in school, I'm a student, I'm doing all these things, I'm like, great. But something was feeling off, like I didn't really feel like myself. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm just busy, that's the price of purpose, right? Like you're just really busy, stress is cool when you go to a liberal arts school. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm doing the thing, this is great. And I'm, but at the same time, I recognize, you know, I probably need a rest or what they call a vacation at some point. And that moment seemed to come for me in the summer of 2015. So I had a mentor in school, who, her name's Julia Hannabrink, and she was shepherding a grant with the National Institutes of Health. And so we partnered together to bring that to Trinidad and Tobago and work with the University of West Indies, serving a project that served people with disabilities. So I'm like, cool, I'm still in purpose, but I get to go back to Trinidad, which is the first time I had been back since my grandmother had passed. And I would get that kind of rest, and I was so ready to be back on the island to see my family there. And so I get there, and going through the work, trying to make friends with my fellow researchers and doing all these things, and whatever was going on with me was still there. And I was like, man, I thought, you know, the, the ocean air, the island breeze would just like melt us away. So I was like, maybe I just need to be here longer. So about halfway through, we get invited to a harvest festival at a friend's Catholic church. And I'm not Catholic, but my grandmother was, so I'm thinking about her a lot on the drive over. And, you know, I'm thinking about her, and then all of a sudden it occurs to me, oh, crap, I don't know how to do the thing, right? <laughs> and so I'm just like, oh, okay. And so I, like, I get in line, and I'm like watching everybody else do the thing. And when I get up to the priest, I just freak out. So whatever I did was not it. And I was like, okay, so he's just going to throw more holy water on me to cleanse this, and like, we'll just move on. 
But it really had me thinking through all of the rituals my grandmother did to be such a devout Catholic and to be so wonderfully steeped in her purpose and give good to the world. So to be honest with you, I have no idea what that sermon was about. I was just sitting there thinking of my grandmother and thinking about purpose and the kind of feeling I was feeling was bubbling up, right? And I'm just unusually distracted, looking at any and everything except the message. So when everybody breaks for lunch to celebrate with the feast, I kind of sneak away a bit because I needed just some space to figure out what was going on and get my head right so I could be all smiley with people, right? Like, that's the thing. So I go out and I look over at the edge of the mountain and I'm looking down to the south of the island, trying to see if maybe I could see Princess Town. I had no idea how I was actually going to know if I'd seen it or not. It's just way down there. But looking at that large expanse and also being in the mind state I was in, something felt different. And all of a sudden, I felt like a freight train hit me in the chest, carrying emotions that I didn't know before. I felt like the whole world was trembling, like I was being pulled apart. I'm having a panic attack. I'd never had one before, so this was crazy. It felt like an earthquake in my body. So I'm looking around to see if everything else is also shaking, and it's not. So I'm just like freaking out. I hate how I'm feeling, and I can't stop it. So I go back into the church, right, because I also don't want people to see me like, Ugh. And I just get on my knees and I start praying and I'm crying and I don't know really what I'm saying. I'm just like, this feels really intense. And to be honest, I just want some help. Please make it stop. That moment was very serious for me to slow down. So when I got back to the States, I decided, okay, I'm going to check out therapy. And I was an RA, so I always told my residents, you know, if you're feeling off, you should go see a counselor, right? Because it's so easy to tell somebody else to go see a counselor. So I get there, but, or I'm like prepping for it, you know, and I'm someone who needs time to process. So I was like, okay, well, this therapist is really not going to tell me anything I don't know about myself. And so I'm going to write down, and I brought it for you, because this is me being wild. I wrote down everything I had gone through in my life and thought to myself, okay, I'm going to read her my checklist, and she's just going to tell me the things that I already know, which is I need to sleep more, drink water, take care of myself, rest. And I thought, okay, cool, I'll get the therapist to tell me this. So when my friends say, hey, let's go out, I could be like, oh, sorry, Mary, I got to sleep, you know, therapy is crazy. <laughs> so that's what, I'm, that's, that's what I'm on, okay? So I walk in there, got my little list, and she, you know, smiles at me, that kind of building trust smile, like I've peeped game, you know? And she's like... <laughs> So, how are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm great. And she's like, okay. So, what brings you in today? So I pull out my little list. I'm like sitting there. I'm like, yeah, Susan, here are all the things. I go down the list, and then I look at her. And her trusting, inviting smile had turned into like, so how are you? And I don't know what voodoo magic she pulled on me, but I start Falling. I mean, it is like Niagara Falls is falling from my face. I am just like torn apart. And the truth is, that was the first time I had been honest out loud about what was going on. So what I didn't share with you, and it's because I had also not been sharing it with myself, was that I was heartbroken. The person, my high school sweetheart I had been with for five years, who I thought I was going to marry, I broke up with him not too long before because... We didn't really know ourselves outside of our relationship, and he hadn't been there for me when I had a tumor in my breast for nine months, not knowing if I had cancer or not. After the stock market had crashed in 2008, there was financial strain on my family, and dealing with that as a younger kid, that's a lot of the world to try to figure out. I was also feeling anxious. I had depression, and I didn't know it. 
There are also tons of things on this list, but we're not that close yet, so you don't get to know them. But the gist of it is, is that I was really not being honest with myself and pursuing all of these things outside of myself, thinking that if I pursued them hard enough, I could push my anxiety down and all of this fear I had, all the challenges I had, and they would just take their bags and go packing, right? Like, get out the paint, you know? That's not how anxiety works, that's not how life works, and that's certainly not how death works, which is what I was scared of. So the next five years, what I really had to do was get back to the very basics. I had to learn how to be healthy. And what that looked like for me is I had to figure out what does health look like for me physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and socially, and make those things my number one priority, which is code for I had to make me my priority. That's a wild thing to do when you're so used to doing everything external, to serving, to loving, to trying to push everything around the world to be peaceful. But when you're avoiding yourself, that's not possible. So I developed a wellness routine. And for me, that looked like all those things I thought my therapist was going to tell me, just sleep, drink water, exercise, take time for yourself, go to therapy. It's important. It will save your life. And honestly, that was the basics for me. And then on top of that, I had to figure out, okay, what are the things that I need to nourish myself? And one of those things is flowers. Uh, my parents probably knew this when I was little. They named me Chloe, which means blossoming, which I think is kind of cool. Um, but those are the kinds of things that you really get to know about yourself when you take a pause and look inward. So on top of getting to the basics, getting to know myself, I started having moments where I felt peaceful inside, no matter what was going on. And this brings us to 2019, the best and honestly hardest year of my life thus far. So it's the best in the sense that the program I had been working on for the past three years got funded, which was great, and I now run that program. I got named to a few professional lists, including the Forbes 30 Under 30. Wow, didn't see that coming. I also fell in love, even wilder, because I definitely didn't see that coming, with an amazing partner, and we got to travel all over the U.S. and Europe, and honestly, it's the healthiest relationship I've ever been in. On the other hand, it's also been the hardest of my life. I had debilitating anxiety that, really, I would be in the bed for so long and felt like I couldn't move. I'd lost loved ones in, to gun violence that I did not expect. I had all of these still questions around how do we make change in the world? How do we go through and make meaning out of our lives when there's so much pulling at us? How do you rest? And what I would say that I'm most proud of through all of it is that through every moment I was present, I was healthy, I was myself, and I can confidently say that I thrived throughout all of what was challenging and wonderful at the same time. That is called wellness. It's being able to manage the internal and the external in a way that creates a harmony for yourself to where you know you are still grounded in who you are. You're at peace with all of what is in you and around you and figuring out, okay, what are my next best steps? So let's go back out and look at the world for just another second. Aside from all the apocalyptic facts I told you in the beginning, there are also a lot of great things going on. We have people um, who are promoting causes, who are protesting in the streets saying, we know we deserve more. Look at Hong Kong, look at what's happening in India. Look at, honestly, what's happening in the US every day. We're trying to figure it out. 
And really, the reason I think we haven't figured out just how to do this together is because we've all been so wrapped up in what is our purpose. Purpose has two options. You can set a goal, you can meet that goal, but then you're bored and you have to figure out new goals. It's like this endless cycle, right, of chasing external things. Or you can set a goal for yourself that is so far out that it's actually unattainable and peace and fulfillment's always just beyond your reach. So you consume and you grasp and you take in so much all the time looking for how do I make this better? And the truth is, I don't think it's through purpose. I think really what we're looking for when you see protests and you see people fighting causes or going to work, you're looking for fulfillment, we're looking for peace inside, and we're looking for how do we act well and be well with one another. And you cannot give or make what you don't have, so how do we make world peace when we don't know how to have peace for ourselves? So if you want to save the world, if you want to live in an environment that is thriving and where prosperity looks the same for all of us, not just the few who have the most privilege, you start with you. You start with figuring out what does health look like for me physically, mentally, socially, emotionally, spiritually, and work really hard on being good at you. Because just like hurt people hurt people, not peaceful people wreak havoc, right? So my challenge to you today is to really take serious this commitment to cultivating wellness for yourself. Because once you are filled yourself with that kind of peace, it has no choice but to flow out into all of the spaces around you. And I can guarantee you, you will enjoy your life so much more, which is truly the reason we're here. So thank you so much for coming to my TED Talk. All right, guys, we're back. You just heard Chloe's TED Talk. Chloe, let's just jump right into it. You started your TED Talk stating that you were fresh coming off a quarter-life crisis. Yeah. Um, and it, I thought it was really funny and refreshing because you announced it that way, and then you also said, but I'm 26 now, so I'm still in crisis. It's just not quarter-life anymore. <laughs> and I just, I, I just loved that so much. And as someone who, at in their 30s, still has those moments where I can't call it a quarter-life crisis anymore, but those moments of crisis where I'm, you know, dealing with figuring out where I'm going, who I am, what's my life trajectory. I kind of want to just get a little more from you on, you know, where are you with your crisis moment? Mm -hmm. Is it still ebbing and flowing and kind of where you are now and how you got here? Yeah. So, great set of questions. Thank um, before you. <laughs> I talk through my crisis, I just want to say, like, I think it's really normal for people yes. who are, I mean, any young person, millennials and Gen Z specifically, to be in crisis. I agree. Like, we're growing up in a world that is literally in crisis, and we can see it. And so, whereas our the generations before us um, didn't have the same level of visibility, they didn't have the same levels of access. Um, so, in certain ways, like, we are more privileged in what we know. Yes. But it is much more difficult on the human psyche to handle all of the things that we are asked to answer that people before us weren't asked to answer, especially in the context we're in now. Right. So I just want to affirm you. It's I think it's it's cool that we're in crisis. Like, it's normal, right? right. Like, it's our bodies responding appropriately. So that said, I am definitely still there. <laughs> <laughs> and But I, I think that the crisis, if you call it, or just, like, real living yeah. um, is 
is part is I think it's just symptomatic again of the context we're in, mm-hmm. the questions that we ask ourselves. And for me, a lot of it's existential. Yes. So a lot of it's the fact that so far as we know, living our lives in like the bodies we're in, in this consciousness we're in, with the people that we are we love, um, in the the communities that we're in, happens one time. Mm-hmm. And I found myself recently thinking back to even though I had challenges in my childhood, I had a beautiful childhood. Yeah. And I think of so many happy things that happened. And most recently, I've been thinking about the fact that my siblings and I most likely will never all live in the same house again. Oh. And I'm just like, wow. Yeah. Like, it was like one of those revelation tough. things yeah. that you just, when you stop to think about it, it's like, oh. Yeah. Okay. And I remember when my older brother went to college, it wasn't this moment of, like, that that moment didn't hit me. Right. I was just like, oh, okay, cool. And I think in my mind, like, oh, he'll be back. Yeah, you're like, catch you later. I'll yeah, see exactly. you when you're home. Like, yeah. And he went to Rhodes, too, so he was close. And so when I went, I also didn't have the moment. Like, I just, it didn't happen right. for a while. So when it started to sink in, like, okay, yeah, childhood's over. It's like, oh, wow, childhood's yeah. over. Oh. You know, like, we don't go back to that. And so I've, I've really been... Uh, you know, meditating on this fact that we don't go back. And while there's some beautiful pieces about that, mm-hmm. it's like, I have my own money now. I have my own right. car now. Like, <laughs> I have so much, I have more freedom now than I did as a kid. Like, it's a balance of finding gratitude for what was. Mm-hmm. Um, and just embracing the nostalgia yes. as well. And also a bit of grief, you know, and a bit of a sense of, I don't know if loss is the right word. It's almost acceptance. Yeah, it's yeah, it's you know, like walking into acceptance of like, okay, this is moving forward. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of my energies recently have been about, I mean, you nailed it, like acceptance. Um, and then also giving grace for myself and people because we're all trying to figure this out. And so when people, you know, respond to situations out of stress or out of confusion right. or out of you know, maybe not their highest self. Mm-hmm. A lot of my responses lately have been, I think, pretty compassionate just for all that we're shouldering, all that we're right. going through. Um, yeah. I think that that's a great point, living with grace in, like, the times where – I mean, you should – I'm a big proponent of living with grace, period, yeah. point blank, no matter the time during. But I think now it's so much more important because we're all encountering these stressors for sure. that weren't there before. And it, I, it takes me sometimes, sometimes I have to actively remember, like, what may feel like a paper cut to me could feel like a stab wound yeah. to somebody else. Like, yeah, yeah. no one's trauma or things they're going through is worse than, you know what I mean? Like, For sure. in that kind of capacity. So it's, you have to remember to go with grace with people because you, you don't know mm-hmm. everyone's life story. And you actually brought this up in your TED Talk, and this kind of leads into it, that one in three millennials has a diagnosed anxiety disorder mm-hmm. that they're dealing with, um, which is a statistic that kind of mind boggles me, but it's also one that I don't find super shocking, Yeah. Um, unfor- unfortunately, you know. <laughs> um, we were brought into this age, and you say this, that— you know, there was a technology boom and there's all this innovation and we witness crisis after crisis and this persistent inequality that exists in our world. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we are a generation that was almost brought up to worry about the future mm-hmm. in a way. And so, you know, as we're working to make things better and we want to fix them, how do you think that growing up this way has affected, like, our generation mm-hmm. and the way we live, but also how the generations preceding and before us 
have also viewed us? Because <laughs> I always think that's a very cool question to get into, and I definitely want to get into it with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I there's this meme that floats around where it's like, oh, boomers hate millennials yeah. because they'd rather buy avocado <laughs> toast than diamonds. <laughs> always the avocado toast. That's why yeah. we can't have houses. Yeah, yeah. That's why we can't have houses <laughs> or diamonds, and it's like, no, y'all crashed the economy. Yes. Now twice. You know what I'm saying? So, so I'm trying. I'm trying not to sound spiteful because I don't. I don't feel that way. But no. I think it's really out of touch, right? To expect the same behaviors and the same career trajectories and the same cultural beliefs when our entire world looks completely different than the world they grew up in. Mm-hmm. So whenever I hear people saying like millennials are ungrateful or they're entitled, isn't that always the one too? Yeah, it's always it's, it. Does not map onto my experience no. at all. Um, I, I will say I've seen a, a person or two where they do things and I'm like, ah, okay, so this is why people think this yeah. about us. But it's so few and far between. Yes. Um, where like so many millennials that I know, if they're not married, still live with a roommate. And it's like, that was not you all's experience, mm-hmm. right? Like even just the fact of living with a roommate it's more it makes more economic sense you know there's community in that i i have no issue living with like with people living with roommates at mm-hmm. all but just that simple fact of like even how we cohabitate's different right um and part of that again is out of necessity like when you see people like our job markets people aren't retiring right like there's entry level jobs require like a masters plus 5 yes. years of experience and it's like how does that how, how does do that you track expect that? Yeah. yeah like how where where are we supposed to start you know and so people, I think there's very rightfully so millennials with a lot of confusion who can't look to their parents or their grandparents for advice on what to do yeah. that maps onto the current situation. So I think that generational gap is is pretty significant, um, especially because, and maybe and maybe even with like younger millennials and older millennials, like younger millennials grew up more with technology than mm-hmm. older millennials did, right? So I think that there's in the 90s a pretty significant shift that, you know, has changed, like, what comes after mm-hmm. versus what was before. So connection, I think, looks pretty different between generations. Very much does. And I think you kind of just touched on it, you know, when you have entry-level jobs requiring, like, a master's degree. Yeah, it's, it's kind of <laughs> use, And then we're kind of judged for, like, the overwhelming sense of pressure we put on ourselves. And yeah. we almost wear over-exhaustion and stress like a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. And... That's something I know I've had to overcome as, you know, I'm working into the workforce. And then you see things like that, like this entry-level physician that's requiring these things. And you're like, this is why, Mm -hmm. you know, because we feel like we have to be harder, better, faster, stronger, not to quote a Kanye song. Like, you just (laughs) feel like you keep having to try and it's never enough. You have to keep pushing. Mm -hmm. And you focus a lot of your talk around purpose. And I feel like a lot of that striving is us trying to build this purpose for ourselves and just figure it out. And I just want to know, you know, how do you actively choose? You're such a well-put-together person. You, like, are very transparent and honest is one of the reasons, like, I love always talking with you and hearing your stuff is because you're just, you know, you're you're just going to tell it how it is, like, how you feel. You know, how do you actively choose when enough is enough? Hmm. and like pull back yeah so I I honestly think that my body chooses for me <laughs> sometimes <Hey>. like before <laughs> before my mind catches up yeah so, um one of the things about having anxiety is that 
um, it'll detect things before I, like my mind catches up, mm-hmm. right? So if I start to feel anxious, um, whereas sometimes, yes, anxiety is a disability, it can also be a really good radar for me mm-hmm. to know like, okay, something's off here, Yeah. right? Um, so if I'm feeling, yeah, like I'll, I'll pay attention to my body. So if I'm feeling tired, if I'm feeling stressed, if I'm feeling, um, yeah, just depleted and it's going on as a pattern, mm-hmm. then I know I need to change something. Right. I also know like there are things outside of our intuition that are more objective and helpful. So like how many hours am I sleeping? Mm-hmm. How much water am I drinking? Have I meditated? Never enough. Like, the answer for water and sleep is never yeah, enough, honestly. Yeah. And, and just like I think the more I dig in and, and read and, and talk to people and um, educate myself on what it takes to be like physiologically and psychologically uh, sound in our foundation, mm-hmm. I recognize that most no one does those things. Right. And so I have to look at the more objective pieces and say like, Chloe, are you doing any of these things? Right. And when the answer is no, nah, I'm like, okay, I, I need to step back. <laughs> yeah, so, it's time to reevaluate. Yeah, and also not punish myself for doing them, like for it taking time to build up to these practices or it taking time to get my water intake right yeah. or to get my, you know, self-talk in check or to, you know, any of the the wellness components. Because, again, we were not taught this. Mm-mm. We were not. And the and the generations before us weren't taught this. Right. So I can't it's a cycle. either. Yeah, and I, I want us to be the generation that breaks that. Right. Yeah, where we say like, because if not, I, I think a lot of us will perish untimely or early or even if we're alive, still have such a low quality of mm-hmm. life in between our ears. Just like that, these little balls of stress bouncing yeah, around all over the place. Like life is too short and too precious to to lose ourselves. Yes. To just like you're born, you're stressed out, and then you die. Like that is so tragic to me. That is, <laughs> no. And yeah, that, that's not it. It's not, yeah, definitely. That is not it. Yeah, like just yeah, quote that, it. put it on, like <laughs> that is not it. And so it's just, you speak very eloquently to it of like managing that internal and external mm-hmm. harmony within yourself. And I know a way you do that, and you mentioned it earlier in this episode, and you also mentioned in your TED Talk, is you're a major proponent of therapy. Yeah. And what a game changer that was to you. So I I also agree therapy is such an important process. But for those listening and anyone who may be on the cusp, they've been, they, mm-hmm. they know they need to go, but they're kind of worried. Because yeah. there's a stigma. We all know there's a stigma attached. It's getting better. Yeah. Um, the older generation is usually where it still is, but it's getting better with us. And hopefully it'll continue to get better with the generations that come after us. Mm-hmm. But how do you kind of navigate in- encouraging someone to go when they're worried about what people think? Yeah, so I, I'd say that therapy is a really personal decision. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I think we can stand up for ourselves that's super small is managing our health without having to ask for permission. So I, I grew that. up from um, in cultures where therapy wasn't accessible. And part of our coping mechanisms just, like, evolved without therapy. Mm-hmm. So I think part of the stigma to it is, like, that's not for us, right? That's very and valid. so when I... Th- went back through um, my experience. I was in college. I was an RA. And we had different kinds of trainings on student health. And one of them was a therapist, right? So I started digging into mental health. And what I realized is a therapist is just like someone you can talk to about what's going on who actually knows what to say back to you. Right. (laughs) Right. Like it's super simple. Like therapy, I think think like demystifying what happens in a therapy session is pretty helpful too. It's like you go and you share what's been going on. This person just listens to you. They're trained to listen to you with compassion and empathy. And also, 
they are training human psychology so they can tell you what are certain ways that you can feel better? Like what are certain ways that you can, or certain things that like maybe are connected from your past that you can release and breathe easier, Mm -hmm. right? Like, like I think one of the things I've heard from people I love that if I go to therapy, they'll just tell me something's wrong with me. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just say to you that in my experience and the experience of my friends who have gone, that has never been the case. And it's usually been, yeah, of course you feel that way because here, here are these set of things that also are connected that you might not have realized are connected. Yes. And that's a very natural response. However, that response is not going to serve you well in this moment or long term. So how do we just like guide you a different way? Right. Yeah. I think therapy can go in hand in hand with anybody's spiritual or religious practices. I agree. It can go hand in hand with your fitness routine. Like it is, it's just like a key part of being a person. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are a lot of people, especially men, that I talk to who say, like, I just don't need to talk about my problems. Right. Feelings. Ew. Like, that's kind of there. Yeah. And even the ones who I'd say are best adept at dealing with their feelings, Mm -hmm. their tactic has been, like, you just hold it down. Yeah. You You just deal. Yeah. Keep it pushing. Don't linger. But the the problem with that is, like, trauma lives in the body. Mm -hmm. Or, like, difficult. And trauma doesn't have to be, like, Oh, I lived through a tsunami. Like, yeah. trauma's anything that's disruptive to you that sticks. Yep. So it could be a comment somebody made to you that just happened to hit on the right insecurity, and it's created some, like, low-grade form of trauma in your body, right? So even if you mentally can still move forward and do the things you're going to do, if you don't release that trauma, like, it stays and it builds up to one day you're like, how in the world did I get here? Mm-hmm. And it's because we haven't released these things out of our body that we need to. Yes. And so I also I also maintain that I know the medical histories against communities of color and abuses by the medical system. Mm-hmm. I know the ways that there are barriers in access to therapy. So I'm not um, insensitive towards those no, things. No, it can be a scary and hard thing to access as well. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that trying also different modalities of therapy like art therapy can be really helpful mm-hmm. as well like it's not it's not just about talk therapy there's right um emdr for people who have experienced trauma that's been so helpful like there are yeah different types of therapy so if talk therapy is not for you i'd encourage people to look at the different types of therapy that exist and just try it like the worst case that happens is you stay right where you are and you don't progress forward yeah it's i think it's a very cool thing because you talked about how you opened it up is how you had your list of things. And like yeah, awesome. knowing you, like having conversations, you, I was like, that that tracks like with like a Chloe thing to do. Yeah. Maybe to show up with a list and your therapist is just like, how are you? And you just ball. I think yeah. it's just a testament to how bad some of us need that outlet and mm-hmm. not even a validation of your feelings, but to know that. We are these beings that are encompassed of all these things that have happened to us, each and every one of us. And sometimes it's just, it's okay to need to go and talk those things out. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I thought that was like a very beautiful testament to your TED Talk and kind of wrapped up, you know, your testament to life is, purpose is great, but life is more than purpose. Yeah. It's about your personal well-being. So I want you to tell the people before we go, I could talk to you forever. There's so many <laughs> other things I would love to ask. Maybe we can do a part two sometime. For sure, whenever. But tell the people where they can find you and keep up with you and the endeavors of Memphis, like Poor Relief and things. 
Yeah. So for me personally, yes. Um, you can find me on Instagram at chloe.hackim.more. She also posts these wonderful, like, it's great. Like, her <laughs> pictures you. are beautiful. And not only that, but she is so transparent. It's not like an influencer journey. You're going to get the hard truth. She's like, I'm having a bad day. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, for sure. <laughs> and, and I think that that's important, too, because it's like, real life to me is so much more beautiful when it's honest and holistic. Yes. Like, and it's, yeah, and it ranges the spectrum of the things human we go experience. Through. Yeah, it's just yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's not always good. To, <laughs> yeah, it's a disservice to show a highlight reel because it's also like one just one slot. Anyways, I'll be on my soapbox. Oh no, it's like we could be here. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, Instagram is the best way to connect with me. Um, I have a Twitter. LOL. I barely <laughs> use it. Um, and I'm starting a YouTube channel over the next couple oh, months. Awesome. So. More topics like this will come up there. Yeah. And then for the work of Porterleaf and Next Memphis, the websites are the best way to find those. Perfect. So that's Porterleaf, um, I think, .org, .com. I think we have both domains. I think and you then, do as well. I think when you yeah. type in one, it'll lead you to the other. It yeah, redirects. so. And then nextmemphis.org also pops up. So, yeah, check us out there. We I, I can't say enough how honored I am to do the work um, with Next Memphis and Porterleaf. And I think we do pretty cool things. So. I. I concur. You do very cool things. <laughs> Forget that pretty business. Like, y'all do some very awesome things for our community. You do some really awesome things for our community. Yeah, I love getting to uplift voices like yours with this podcast and all the other insanely cool people I have gotten to talk to lately. Literally, I said it with Rachel Knox or like my mind. Yeah. is blown with the kind of people I've gotten to talk to and the talent we have right here know, in the Holland city. Town, it's pretty great. It, yeah, and nobody wants to go. Like, we want to make Memphis the best it can be, and you guys are putting in the work to make it happen. And so, Chloe, it yeah, was lovely you. talking with you. I'm so happy I got to see you. Yeah, thanks and for having me. guys, follow her Instagram, Twitter, follow Porter Leith in their journey through their websites. You won't regret it. Bye. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, well, that does it for this week's episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. Thank you for joining us this week to learn more about this city, to learn how you can engage, give back, and be an active citizen here in Memphis. And as always, New Memphis, our nonprofit organization, has plenty of other opportunities for you to continue loving your city. Uh, one such opportunity is actually today, February 23rd, from noon to one, so over your lunch hour, we are having a virtual luncheon. This is part of our Celebra Celebrate What's Right luncheon series. They are exactly what the title implies. We are picking something that is worthy of celebration in our city, uh, highlighting an area of progress, of success, something that we can all genuinely be proud of and celebrate and hopefully uh, advocate for and continue to, to, to build on. So for this edition, we have assembled a panel of local innovators to share why and how Memphis is leading the pack when it comes to cutting-edge ideas, technology, and business development. Memphians are on the move, uh, and you can see through this panel how we're paving a new path, paying it forward, and pioneering for our city across sectors. So we have assembled an amazing group of just innovators, right? So we've got um, some of our friends from uh, Epicenter. So if you're familiar with their great work in the entrepreneurial space, we have um, some friends from Innovate Memphis, again, an amazing nonprofit that is, it's right there in the title, <laughs> Solving <laughs> Problems for Memphis' Future, and a whole slew of other speakers. Um, I hope that you'll join us. It is free. It is virtual. Please pop in over lunch today uh, and learn a little something more about our city. You can head over to newmemphis.org, uh, and that is where you can find about more information about the event, but also register so you'll get that link to join. 
Christy, what else do we need to know this week? Yeah, guys, go over to newmemphis.org. Not only will you be able to find the Celebrate What's Right information, but you will be able to find all information about our other events. Also, to keep in touch with us, I know I say this all the time, and I'm going to keep saying it. Follow us on social media at the New Memphis. We're on all four major social media platforms, and that is the best way to keep in touch and in tune with all that's going on in our city. From shining light on the great things that are happening to the events we're running, you will get all your one-stop shop news there with us. Also, I would be remiss to say, we are a nonprofit. That means, yeah, amen. Give us an amen. (laughs) Um, But that means we rely on the support from our community to help us do the work we do. So if you like listening to this episode, if you like the work we do, if you follow us on social, if you've gone through a program, however you're connected to New Memphis, if you want to keep supporting us, please visit newmemphis.org slash donate and give us a little donation. No amount is too small and we appreciate it all. No and, amount is also too big. Yeah, this, <laughs> yes, you heard it here first, guys. <laughs> I'm an expert fundraiser, can you tell? <laughs> I love it. And last but not least, you heard Michael and me do a drum roll last week. But New Memphis and our podcast, Me All in Memphis, is now actually a podcast. And we're on all podcast networks. So from Apple to Spotify to Stitcher. I know there's others, but I don't know their names. (laughs) Um, You can find us there now and not just live on WYXR. The episodes air after they go live. So they are posted at 9.01 a.m. every Tuesday, if you see what we did there, because get it? (laughs) We're super, we're clever over here. So guys, give us a listen, give us a review, let us know what we could do better, what you like, and what you want to hear. All right, well, I think we've done it. Thank you, Memphis, for (laughs) tuning in, and we will see you next week. Bye. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you in partnership with WYXR, produced by New Memphis and hosted by Anna Mullins Ellis and Christy Mullen. For more information, please visit newmemphis.org. Audio for this show is recorded and produced by the OAM Network. For more information, please visit pod901.com.